Okay, we'll start. Uh, we're in the middle of Riglam, uh, the least popular course. Um, <laughs> Rig means uh, reasoning or, or logic. Lam means path. Riglam is the path of logic, path of reasoning. Um, and I repeat that uh, Jetson Kappa's most important disciple, Geltapje, said that the kindest thing Jetson Kappa ever did for him was not to give him tantric initiations or Lamrim teachings or anything else. It was to teach him Riglam. Okay? Uh, and I wanted to review a typical Riglam, okay? Here's a typ- typical Rigpa. You gotta have a Shinden Chuchin Kyun Me, which is the subject. Tibetan uh, logic, Buddhist logic, comes in three parts. Each logical statement has three parts. First one, you take an example. You point out something. Let's say, take me, okay? Take myself, okay? You just take an object. You take anything that you want to prove something about, okay? Uh, I should study and practice more seriously. (laughs) Because, by the way, that's called uh, dukja, the thing to be proven. Uh, Because I'm going to die tonight. That's actually death meditation. This is, the in, this is the essence of death meditation. Death meditation in the long room doesn't mean, you know, closing your eyes and seeing purple colored lights and stuff like that. It's to do this reason to yourself over and over again. Okay? What I want to say is that the point of logic is to address places where we just have spiritual obstacles. So, I mean, like, you know these three are true. You know this is a true statement. Okay? Why? Uh, does your opponent know what me is? These are all the logical checks for a, a good proof. Yeah, they know what me is. Okay. Uh, do they understand what it is to study and practice more seriously? Yeah. Uh, do they know they're going to die tonight? Well, somebody might go say, I'm not going to die tonight. I say, how can you say that? Prove it. You know? <laughs> okay? You can't prove that. You can't prove that. You can't say that. Okay? If you feel more comfortable, you can say I might die tonight, but, okay? I won't, I won't uh, insist, all right? But uh, those are like three. The opponent has to understand the essence of the three statements, meaning me, practicing more seriously in study, and what it means to die tonight, that they, that, they, that they will die tonight, okay? The essence of death meditation is to say, I will die tonight. Now, you might get the day wrong. Okay? You might get the wrong day. But someday you'll hit it right. Okay? Really. So, it's okay. All right? What are the three uh, tests? Tsusum yimba, tayandakiteni. Tsusum yimba, tayandakiteni. What's the definition of a good reason? Correct reason. Correct logical proof. Three relationships hold. Three relationships hold. Chokchu. First one, chokchu. The relationship between number one and number three. Is it true that you're going to die tonight? 
Yeah, sooner or later, okay? I mean, when you get good at death meditation, you'll just say yes, okay? When you get really good at death meditation, death meditation means you, you're laying in your bed in the morning, you open, I mean, sorry, your mind opens, right? You wake up. And before you open your eyes, say, I'm going to die tonight. Now, what am I going to do? There's a new movie coming out. I look forward to it. Uh, what's it called? The End, I think. Last Day. It's called The Last Day. It's coming out this Friday. Anyway, so the guy, I just read a review. The guy's a uh, long story. But uh, he's got six hours. He knows he's going to die in six hours. And so what is he going to do in six hours? And the whole planet, everybody knows they're going to die in six hours. So it's like everybody has these different reactions. That's perfect death meditation, okay? So, you, before you get up, before you open your eyes, you sit there and you, and you just lay there and you say, I'm going to die tonight, now what do I want to do in my life, okay? That's a real death meditation. And, and it just works so beautifully. Like within about three months or six months of thinking like that, your life is totally transformed, okay? And you're totally happy, like you're on the right track, okay? So anyway, the first requirement of a correct logical statement is that one plus three is true. And that's true. You are going to die tonight. Okay. If you're going to die now, we check number, logical check number two. If three, two. True or false? If you're going to die tonight, should you practice and study more seriously? Yeah, so number, test number two checks out. Okay, true. If not two, not three. Okay? <laughs> Is it true you shouldn't study and practice more seriously if you're not going to die tonight? I don't know, maybe you could say that. Okay. If you knew you had another day, maybe you could lighten up. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's if I don't study and practice more seriously, I will die tonight. <laughs> anyway, something like that. The point here is that the reason to do this, the reason to learn logic, okay, is that there's two kinds of objects that you have trouble about. They're called kokyur and shinto kokyur. Uh, hidden and very hidden object. Um, emptiness is called a hidden object. Okay, this is called ngungyur, evident reality, obvious reality, the colors and shapes and things you can see and taste and touch. Okay, then there's a thing called kokyur, which is like hidden reality, like emptiness. And then there's shinto kokyur, which means very hidden reality, which is like the subtle workings of karma and its consequences. You know, like what is it that made uh, the lines on the ceiling or the, on the, what made the scratches on the floor tiles, you know, each one. What's the karma for you to have to see that? You see, I mean, only a Buddha can tell you that. An Arya can see emptiness directly. And then normal people can see this. So really there's three levels of reality going on all the time. And I had a beautiful debate in Gandhi and Shartse one night, wiped them out. Uh, and they were trying to you know, it was very beautiful because we came at it without knowing what we were doing. We were, all hadn't reached that subject yet. But we decided that those three realities shift for each person. You see what I mean? Like for a Buddha, everything is reality level number one. You see what I mean? 
and emptiness is no shakes for them. So to them, it's the same as colors and, and shapes. You see, I mean, we had this huge debate about it. Uh, really, what, what those three realities are depend on where you're at. And, and, and for one person, this can be very deep or it could be obvious. You see, I mean, so what's the point here? There are certain things that at our level, if you are who you seem to be, that uh, you can't see. And you won't be able to see. You see what I mean? And you need to use reasoning to see them. And one of the things is that you're going to die tonight. You know? Like to see. Actually, the dupta here is this one. To believe that you should really practice this if your hair was on fire, they say. You know, that you should do your dharma practices with the same kind of intensity that you would try to put out a fire if your head caught on fire. Uh, the reason you can't do it and the reason you have, you know, you come to me and say, I'm doing 23 minutes of meditation because I, you know, the reason you, you think like that is that you can't see the truth of that. You see, I mean, you can't see the truth that you should do it because you're going to die tonight. You giggle when I say you're going to die tonight, you know what I mean? And you just don't believe it. You have a, a spiritual obstacle towards perceiving that directly. It's true. It's, it really is true. And then you have this block about it. You don't feel comfortable about it. It sounds funny. Come on, maybe like when I get as old as my grandfather, but come on, I, I got things to do, you know. I got a check coming in on Monday. You know, I can't die tonight. I won't die tonight. You know what I mean? And you believe it. You really believe it. So logic is good for those things. Prove things to yourself about your spiritual life that your normal mind doesn't want to admit, you know. Learn the rules of logic. Learn the rules of how to prove things. And then, when you do your daily meditations, prove it to yourself. And then, do it over and over again. And then you can't deny it anymore. You know what I mean? You can't try to hide from it. Things that you don't want to admit that, that prevent you from reaching your goals. Okay? That's, the, that's what we're doing. That's what we're trying to do with logic. Okay? Second thing with logic is to really establish how many things there are that you don't know. Okay? And, and that you think you know. Alright? So, in the first case, it was more like trying to open your third eye to see uh, things like the fact that you're going to die tonight. Okay? And the second value of logic is to prove to yourself how much you don't know. Okay? and how much you shouldn't assume that you know. And the great example in logic scriptures is how much you don't know about what other people are thinking or doing. Okay? It's called Minama Mamepetak, and we'll talk about it. The whole subject tonight is going to concentrate on negatives. Proving something negative. Okay? And there's two ways to prove something negative. We divide all negative things into those that you could see if they were here, and those that you could not see if they were here. And there's proofs for each one. I'll say it again. There's proofs for proving that something's not here, which you could have seen if it was here. And there's proofs for proving that something's not here, which you couldn't have seen anyway if it was here. Okay, I'll give you an example. Okay. Dudengi uh, Lala Church. What's that say? Okay? This is very famous. We have to learn like hundreds of these things. Okay? 
means for number one, let's take the Pacific Ocean out in the middle where there's no lights, there's no fires at all. It's pure expanse of water in the middle of the night. The new moon, it's a new moon, it's totally dark, and you're in an airplane and you're looking down and there's not a spot of light. There's no fire. It cannot be a fire. And there's no ships, there's no islands, there's just water. And it's black. It's pure black. There's no smoke there. Because there's no fires. Okay. Uh, okay, and you have to say no smoke from present fires. Okay, because there could have been smoke from a fire that just got put out, but we're not talking about that. Okay. So anyway, that's a, that's a classical proof. If smoke had been there, and if it was daytime, could you have seen it? Yeah. Okay. That's what we call uh, what you call means you're proving something negative. What are you proving? That there's no smoke there. Okay. If there were, had been smoke there, could you have seen it? I mean, assuming it was daytime. Yes. Okay. Smoke is normally visible to a human being. Okay. Under normal circumstances. So. That's called a nangruma mikvetak. It's a proof that something's not there, which you could have seen if it were there. Okay, how's that? The other kind of negative proof, proof for a negative, is called minawa mikvetak. Say minawa mikvetak, which means uh, a proof for the absence of something that you couldn't have seen anyway. Okay, uh, under normal circumstances. Uh, let me say, Dungi Sachi Church, Yidat Seme Mamipe Kazaki Gila, Yidat Seme Yidat Seme Mete, De Gila, De Kokimi Mete, or something like that, okay? Which means, uh, take anybody in this room who cannot see the pretas floating around in this room, the hungry spirits, okay? Take anybody in this room who's incapable of seeing the spirits wandering around in this room. Okay? They don't have a pramana or a direct perception in this case where they can see them because they are not at the level where they can see them. Okay? And that's a proof. Right? Uh, what it means is to a normal person, pretas are invisible anyway. You can't see them. So that's what we call a minamamamipita, a proof to prove the absence of something that they couldn't have seen anyway under normal circumstances, with, with, at their level, okay? Two kinds of proofs of a negative, okay? Two ways to prove a negative. What's the definition of a negative, and what does negative mean? It means a, an object which you have to perceive by excluding something else, okay? An object which in your mind you perceive by excluding something. Okay, by exclusion, exclusion. Okay, what, what's the point in talking about all this? Two big lessons, all right? Two big lessons. The first one, we already spoke about. Lord Buddha said, one of the most important applications of logic is to prove to yourself that you don't know what the person next to you is really thinking about. And you can't judge other people. <laughs> You know, if you're not like an enlightened being like me or someone like me, then don't go around judging the people next to you because you can't read their minds. 
Okay? And you don't know how many people sitting around you are already enlightened. Oh, come on. That person can't be enlightened. Why? They act so weird, you know? <laughs> and uh, they look funny, and they don't talk so good, and uh, all kinds of, they don't have any money, and stuff like that. How could they be enlightened? You know, come on. If, if somebody uh, is out to help you, and if they've gotten enlightened a million years ago, say, that's not much time for them. And they've been looking a million years into the future to see how they could best serve you. And they decided that they should sit next to you and pick their nose or something so you could learn patience or something, you know, something like that. Who are you to say? I mean, there are millions of enlightened beings in the universe. They can emanate countless numbers of bodies around the planet, you know. So who are you to... One very important application of logic is that you don't know. It's to prove to yourself you don't know. You see, I mean, to just sit there in meditation and say, take Michael Roach. Uh, he shouldn't judge others because he can't read their, their minds right now. Okay? That's all. And then you, you, you look it over. Oh, does, uh, proof, does test number one work out? Is it true that Michael Roach can't read other people's minds right now? Yes. If it's true that Michael Roach can't read other people's minds, should he judge them? Yes. Uh, what's the other one? Uh, he could judge them if he could read their mind. Yes. So is it a good proof? Yes. Are you going to stop judging people now? No. <laughs> <laughs> and no, I'm not kidding. You will see your own mind going through this process. You know, you say, let's do a proof. Okay. Uh, Michael Roach, shouldn't judge other people. Why? Can't see their minds right now. Okay. Uh, let's do a check, okay? Yeah, let's do a check. Michael Roach can't read other people's mind. Right. If you can't read other people's mind, you shouldn't judge them. Right. You could judge them if you could read their minds. Right. So stop judging them, right? No. You know, and then just go, keep going through that. And that's one of the most important functions of logic, especially in my Mingbei Thought. Proof of the absence of something. Okay? It's one of the... Lord Buddha said, this is one of the most important applications of, of Buddhist logic. So again, we're into that field of proving how much, how much you don't know to yourself. So you stop... I mean, how many mental afflictions are, are, are posited on believing that you know why other people are doing things or, or judging them or judging what to do? Does that mean that if you see some guy uh, go up to a lady and hit her in the head and steal her purse, you should say, I don't know, you know, maybe she's a karate master and he's her student and, uh, you know, or something like that. Uh, not like that, okay? Based on what you know, if you see violence being done to another person, you have to try to stop it. Okay? Are you objecting to the person's state of mind? To their parents' state of mind, you can say yes. To what they seem to be doing and seem to be thinking, I object. And I have to move. I have to do something. Are you can you judge the person 100%? No. Okay, maybe the timer to the atom bombs under the World Trade Center is in that purse and he's an FBI agent. And, you know, I don't know. But based on what I know, I have to help this woman. I can't be sure what he's thinking, and I admit that, but based on what I know, I have to act. And that's okay. But you have to give yourself the space to say, I don't judge the person, I judge his action, as I see it. See, I mean, I don't judge the person. Maybe they're some enlightened being, maybe they're doing something special. I don't know. God bless them if they are. But in the meantime, I have to stop them, you see? Because from what I can see, the action is wrong, okay? And that's okay. 
And you have to act like that. Okay? But the, the, you'll find, use this, use this method in morning meditation. When you're sitting there meditating, you know, even just the one I just did, you can use for the rest of your life every morning. And half your problems will melt away. You know, assuming all the time that you know what other people are thinking. You know what they want. You know you can judge them from, you know, 10 seconds of seeing something. You know what I mean? Uh, you'll be much, much happier. Totally happy. I'll be happier. I'll do it. Okay. <laughs> something like that. Second application of that reason is improving emptiness. Okay? To prove emptiness. Emptiness is one of the most important negatives there is. To really understand emptiness, you have to understand what it is to be a negative. What it is to be a negative. There are two kinds of negatives. Okay? Negative in general is called a gakpa. Okay? There are two kinds of... Gakpa means negative. By the way, this is just one of the logic subjects. There are hundreds. They're beautiful. They're fantastic. I chose one because, you know, the readings of three, four hundred pages long. I had to choose one, okay? Uh, but I think it's maybe the most important one, next to Chichedar, but we did that last week. Uh, Gakpas are negatives, okay? Two kinds of negatives exist. Say Mayingak. Mayingak. Okay, and Megat. Megat. I'll give you a classic example of each. But in general, you can think of the first one as saying that something is not something. Okay? The first one is a negative in the sense of saying something is not something. Like, this is not permanent or this is not lasting. Okay? That's a like a qualitative description of something, okay? The classic example of a Mayingak uh, in uh, Tibetan monasteries, a funny one, is that, uh, you know, Joshmo is a monk. Uh, he's really fat, and uh, he doesn't eat during the daytime. Okay? <laughs> okay, Joshmo's a monk. He's really fat, and he doesn't eat during the daytime. Uh, which is to say what? He eats at night. <laughs> he sneaks into the monastery kitchen at night and grubs cookies and stuff like that. Okay? After the noon meal has finished, you remember? Okay, so that's double problem there. He's got a cholesterol problem and a, a valve problem there. Okay? But the statement, it's either a positive or a negative, which suggests, by exclusion, another fact. You see what I mean? Uh, did you like dinner? I really liked the dessert. Okay. <laughs> dessert. You see, I mean, in, in English you do it with the tone of your voice. You see? That's a Mayingai. Uh It means, in fact, that was a positive. You see, I mean, it wasn't a negative, but it suggests another fact. You see what I mean? And that's a classical Mayingai. Also, a Mayingai can be a simple, like, not changing or something like that. It is not changing, or it is not unchanging. You see what I mean? What's the difference between a Mengak and a Megak? Megak is the absence of something. It does not have X. You see what I mean? Or X is not here. 
as opposed to it's not that. You see what I mean? It's not that it's not that. It's that that doesn't have that. You see what I mean? Or that is not present here. This is not a blue pen. That's a Mayangak. The pen is gone. That's a mega. Okay? And you've got to get used to the difference. Okay? One is a negation of a thing's characteristics or qualities. The other is a negation of its very presence or its existence. You see what I mean? So number two is always absences. And you've got to get used to that. Okay? What's the biggest absence of all time? Emptiness. Emptiness. Okay? You've got to get used to that. That's why I brought it up. That's why we discuss negatives so much in the monastery. One is that they are adamant on us learning not to judge other people. Okay? I really don't know what the person's thinking. Okay? Like, it could be something else. I don't know. I have to, I have to leave him that... I have to suspend judgment of other people and work on whose Dharma practice. Oftentimes we do other people's Dharma practice with more energy than our own. You know, like, you should be more nice. You should, you know what I mean? And then we don't even spend that much time on our own Dharma practice, okay? Then the second kind, Megak, just the absence of something. Something's not there, okay? My pocket's empty, okay? That's a Megak. There's nothing here. A proof of an absence. Why? Because I can hit the bottom and, and there's nothing there. <laughs> something like that. That's a proof for a Megak, okay? When you talk about emptiness... You get all these strange ideas, okay? By the way, Buddha said everywhere, emptiness is a mega, okay? Emptiness is the absence of something. Emptiness is the fact that something is not there, okay? What's the, in fact, what's the thing that's not there? We call it what? Gakcha. Now you can appreciate the word gakcha a little more. That thing, cha means that thing, which we gak. Okay? That thing which we deny. That thing which we negate. That thing which we say is not here. Okay? What is that? A self-existing thing. What? Think of it, I always say it's, uh, what do they call it? There's this fancy word. It's ontological status. Okay? It's how much it exists. is zero. Okay? Uh, it's a two-headed, 40-foot, purple elephant rampaging through this auditorium at this moment, crushing seats, smashing people, Roy's out, flying out the window. You know what I mean? Like, uh, it's the, it has as much existence as that. Okay? It always did. It always will. It does now. A self-existent object. Okay? That thing which emptiness is empty of. Okay? the absence of which we call emptiness, okay? And, and, the, and the irony is, is that holding on to that object is what causes you every single pain, and even the fact that you're going to die, okay? Even the fact that your body is mortal, even the fact that it doesn't change tomorrow into a, a body of crystal, liquid crystal, what do we say? Living crystal, yeah, is uh, all due to grasping something that doesn't exist anyway, so it's like a, a double irony, okay? Your life's problems are caused by grasping to something. And guess what? 
It doesn't even exist, ah, you know, okay. It's like some cruel joke, you know. Like if it was ice cream or, or you know, something you can't control yourself over, that would be okay. We're talking that because you believe in something with your whole heart that never existed, will never exist, and cannot exist now, all your sufferings come from that. That's just like blows you away, you know. I mean, it's so powerful that you just think, well, just show me what's not there and I'll stop it, you know. And uh, then I can be like, you know, Miss America deity. You know, I mean, just, just tell me what I have to do. It's the pen thing. Okay, that's all. It's just the pen thing. Okay. Stop reacting to your world and trying to change things self-existently. It doesn't work. Okay. Don't go and argue with this person about why they're so bad to you and they're mean to you and, and they're so, they, they bother you and they irritate you. Come on. You made them. Wake up and stop doing it. You know, stop doing it. A rule of thumb. When someone bothers you, check your old reaction and do the opposite. Okay? You're, you're recreating them every time you respond to them. Period. Okay? So just any problem you have, think of your worst problem and figure out the real reason why it's happening to you. It's emptiness. Okay? Nothing in the world has any nature of its own. Period. No object, no person, no ice cream, no house, no sky, no New York City has a single quality or feature or any kind of adjective about it from its own side. Period. Nothing has any quality of its own. Nothing has any nature of its own. It's all coming from your head. It's all coming from your karma making it that way. Because it doesn't have any nature of its own, everything is possible. You just have to figure out how to give it a different nature from your head, which is to keep your vows six times a day. Okay? That's all. And, and that's the biggest magok of all time. Okay? So magok, the absence of a self-existent thing. You can no longer blame a single other person or object for anything unpleasant in your life. Just forget it. And then you're out of here. You know what I mean? Just forget it. Is it still right to go and stop a mugger? Yes. Who created them? The person getting mugged. Okay? But that's a different question altogether. Why do you stop them? Because it's the right thing to do. Will you stop them? Don't know. Okay? That's a whole different question. Okay? Will they stop because you're trying to stop them? Maybe yes, maybe no. That means you didn't stop them. Okay? Is it the right thing to try to stop them? Of course, you have to try. Okay? Why? Because it's going to make you a Buddha, and then you can explain this stuff to people. How's that? Okay? That's all. You've got to get used to thinking like that. Okay? You've got to get used to thinking like that. To continue to try to manipulate a, a world as if it were self-existent will only continue to bring you suffering. Period. Your whole old way of reacting to every problem you ever had is wrong. Okay? It just won't work. And how old do you have to get before you're going to admit it? You know what I mean? Just face up to it. You know? Someone bothers you, stop bothering other people. And they'll go away. Okay? In the meantime, you can discuss, you can say, you know, hey, you know what, that really bothers me. And they can say, I don't give a, you know, and you can say, okay, well, I just want to tell you, you know. And, uh, 
calmly, happily. You know what I mean? No new bad karma. You know what I mean? But is it going to stop them or not? That's totally dependent on other factors. Okay? But the main thing to get rid of these irritants in your life is to stop treating them like a two-headed, 40-foot purple elephant that you're trying to lasso your whole life. And you have a heart attack trying to chase this elephant, you know. And then just as you're getting old, they say, hey, guess what? He wasn't there in the first place, you know. <laughs> you know, no, it's like, it's an irony. Whatever wrinkles or gray hair or, or, or lack of vitality you have in your body at this moment is caused by chasing these elephants. They don't exist. You're just doing it the wrong way, okay? Just stop it. Yeah, just stop it. <laughs> I wish I could just stop it, too. Okay. What else we got here? It helps a little bit, okay? Somebody told me, uh, somebody told me today, I think yoga is better than emptiness. I said, why? They said, I, every time I get mad, I can't remember emptiness. But if I just did yoga, I feel pretty good. I don't get mad. <laughs> I think okay for an intermediate step. Okay. Uh, I think it's maybe enough. Let me see. Yeah, I think I'll I'll let your teachers do the rest. Yeah, those are the main applications of that logic. Okay, just to repeat, two things: one, to see spiritual truths that you can't see now, see them first with the eyes of logic. Okay. My Lama, Ken Rinpoche, used to joke a lot. When he first came to the United States, somebody read him a Losan Rumba book. About, he was learning English. You know, he read Thomas Jefferson. I tried to get him to read The Hobbit. He wouldn't. And then uh, somebody read him a Losan Rumba, and they would held a guy down, and they drilled a third eye into his skull. You know, and he, then he got a third eye. And Rinpoche thought it was so funny, you know. He said, oh, third eye. You know? yeah, third eye is logic, you know. Third eye is just... You can see all these things with your third eye of reasoning that you can't normally see. For example, the truth that you don't know what the people around you are thinking. You really don't know. So, so work on it every day. Go home, work on it. You know, prove it to yourself over and over. That's called chegom, okay? Chegom is analytical meditation. You go home, you say, Michael Rose, okay? Uh, okay, yeah. Michael Rose, Take Michael Rhodes. He shouldn't judge other people because he can't read their minds, right? Right. Check it out. And then you do the law three logic checks. Is, is it true that Michael Rhodes can't read other people's minds? Yeah. If you can't read other people's minds, you're chopped trying to judge them. Right. If you could read their minds, could you judge them? Uh, maybe. So you shouldn't, right? And then you know there's this long uh, silence while your mind is like <laughs> deciding. <laughs> okay. okay, I'm not kidding. It's a very uncomfortable silence. When you finally corner a guy in the debate ground in front of a thousand other monks, you know, there's this long, just before the booze break out, you know, just before the Bronx cheer, you know, uh, breaks out, there's this very uncomfortable silence because he, he just got it, you know what I mean? You've been setting him up to trap him like 20 statements later and then suddenly he's there and there's this very uncomfortable few seconds of silence, you know. And your own mind will give it to you. You know, your own mind will say, uh, you know, and then you've got to strike right there. During that silence, you have to strike. You know, you say, it is true, isn't it? Yimbata. Duh. 
You know, and then, you know, and then you got, your own mind has to... And then, you know, you'll get up from meditation and you'll judge the first person you see on the street. No. And then you have to... No, but you have to keep doing it in your mind every day, over and over and over again, using it to prove that, okay? Then you have to try to prove emptiness to your mind, okay? Then you have to try to prove it logically. Go over the pen thing over and over and over again, okay? You know, why it's wrong to react to other people the way you used to. Why it's wrong to get upset at them or try to talk them out of it or, or try to struggle with them or have friction with them or, or, you know, this thing, conflict with them. Because that's not, what's gonna, that's not where they came from. That's not what made them come into your life this afternoon. You know, they came into your life through totally other forces. And, and all the stuff you're doing to try to stop them has nothing to do with them and it won't work at all. You know, and then to get your mind into a place where you can accept that is very hard. And you have to use reasoning, you know. I think in the heat of the moment it's almost impossible. But I'd say at least a few hours later, or just before you go to bed when you're doing your book, you know, say, that really was stupid, you know. That's, I created that person. You know, I'm not going to talk them out of being irritating from just standing there and you know, fighting with them, I should try to be a nicer person. And then I'll get rid of them. Okay? Uh, and that's all. So those are the two great uses of logic. Especially for things you cannot see. And you cannot, you cannot see those things. So you either establish them like emptiness or, or give up on them in the case of judging other people. Okay? Because you don't know. It's for, logic is for proving the things you can't see. And it's for proving to yourself that you don't know certain things. And both of them get you out of trouble. Okay? Uh, next class will be going on to Lojo. Okay? And uh, take a break now, and then we'll go into groups. Uh, Ian, we'll do some announcements when you come back from break. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, we'll start. <clears throat> this is like five, ten minutes where we... Uh, we're going to talk about the future of Buddhism in America, right? And um, something came up to me today. You know, I'm searching for a subject to talk about. And uh, someone came to me t- during the day today and said, uh, I spoke to the mother of one of your students, and she has the following concerns, you know what I mean, about her child, you know what I'm like. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and I, you know, I have to draw this... I have to walk the line between, you know, really trying to convince you that you're going to die tonight and then uh, trying to get you to act normally around other people, you know what I mean? And there's this, uh, no, there's this uh, very natural, uh, I don't know what you call it, there's this tension between those two things, you know what I mean? Uh, I'd like to talk about some guidelines and then I'd like to sort out the discussion because I have a problem with this. You know, I, mean, I don't quite know what to do sometimes. Uh, you know, I have very close friends, sponsors, things like that. They come to me and they say, you're just acting crazy, you know. And I say, I don't know, I think the world is crazy. And then I don't quite want know what to do, you know what I mean? And I, I see it like this, you know. Uh, there's a thing in the Lam Rim, you guys have studied it in the Three Principal Path. It's called the Three Diamonds or something like that. Uh, but one is... Uh, what is it? It's a mi chene pang ki la lo fai la lep or something like that, which means uh, get to the point where people kick you out of society. Get to the point where, uh, no, they kick you out of society and you reach the dogs. 
the only people who could put up with you is dogs, stray dogs. Uh, key ten and uh, get kicked out of the rank, get kicked out of the ranks of men, reach the ranks of dogs, and get to the ranks of gods that way, or something like that. You know what I mean? Uh, so you know, the Milarepa in you wants to say, um, unless unless people don't think I'm weird, I'm not doing the right thing. You see what I mean? And and you want to just blow everybody off, and and you you want to be a good Buddhist, and you and you. And you think, well, then that just by nature, what I'm going to be doing is going to be strange and other people are not going to like that. And, you know, I have students come to me and I say, did you call your mother? And they say, no, I didn't call my mother. And I say, well, you should call your mother. And they say, well, my mom's crazy. They think I should get a job, you know, or a career and, and buy a washing machine and a car. And a, you know what I mean? And, and what I, I think the conclusion is Ken Rinpoche was very wise on this point. He was very, very wise on this point. So I came to him at age 20. You know, I could have gone to graduate school. I'm coming out of, with a good degree from a good college. And, and I'm like, I want to stay with you. And he's like, actually, it was Dalai Lama first. And I said, I'm going to quit school. I got three months to go. I'm going to quit school and live with you in Dharamsala. I'm not going to leave. You know, he says, go back to school. You know, go finish your degree, you know. And... Okay, so I did, you know, and, uh, but then I went to Ken Rinpoche, and it was, it was this writing the mind, you know, I didn't tell my parents where I was, I didn't give them my phone number, my brother died, they called the police in Howell, they searched for me, they found me, you know, to tell me, and, uh, and, and, and that was okay, that was the right thing to do at the time, you see what I mean, uh, it upset a lot of people, uh, but I studied like hell and I'm here. You see what I mean? And uh, so I, I have a problem myself with this thing. I, I'll give you my suggestions and then you tell me what you think and we'll just open it up for a few minutes, okay? I, I think the following. Uh, to a certain extent, uh, if you get very serious about your practice, I don't think you can avoid some kind of problems with other people. People will will always think there's something strange about you or something like that, you know? Certain people will drop out of your life immediately. You know what I mean? The people you used to party with, uh, stuff like that, and they'll drop out of your life, and that, that I don't have a problem with. You know, that's okay. I won't hear from them anymore. You know, they won't call me up anymore on Thursday night to see if I have a bag of weed. And, you know, and those people, I think you can just say, you know, see you next life or something. You know, that's okay. Uh, your family is not going to drop you or probably doesn't want to drop you and you don't want to drop them necessarily. So, what do you do? You know, uh, on the one hand, the Buddha said, kill your father, kill your mother, meaning be willing to leave your family behind if that's what it takes to do your practice. On the other hand, you have wise men like Ken Rinpoche whom my stepmother is in love with, she comes once a year, spends a day or two with us, you know, and uh, he's very kind to her. She sends him Christmas cookies and he sends her cupcakes for New Year's. And they have this symbiotic relationship and they like each other, you know what I mean? And he was very careful to, to cultivate this relationship with her so that I could practice nicely, you know what I mean? And uh, so I think on one hand you have to Really, what I'm saying is that there's some kind of middle path there between 
ignoring them completely and moving back home and, and getting an 80-hour job. You know what I mean? There's some kind of compromise there where I think the first extreme to avoid is unnecessarily alienating the people who love you. You know what I mean? And I, I think you can do your practice very well without hurting them. You see what I mean? So I think if you really try hard, if you're really a bodhisattva and you're really exchanging yourself and, and your parents or yourself and your, and your friends or whoever it is or your job, people at your job, I think there's a middle way. I think my experience is that if you're really practicing well, you're more considerate of other people. Like, the better your practice is, the more carefully you walk up steps so that you don't wake anybody up. You see what I mean? The more careful you are to wipe the toilet seat, the more careful you are to not to bother or impinge or to inconvenience other people. I think it's a sign of your practice that you're not inconveniencing other people, even in a little way, like standing in the middle of a, a walkway when someone's trying to get by. You just automatically go to the side because you're always thinking about other people. That's a, I think that's just a... If your practice is good, I think that your natural relation with those people will be that you're very concerned about how they feel and you're thinking about how they feel and you want them to be comfortable and you're doing the very best you can to make them comfortable within the absolute border of your practice. You know what I mean? Like, I have my practice. I don't want to die like everyone's been dying around us. I don't want to get old and not be able to do the things I have to do. And here's my line. You know what I mean? And so on the one hand, you're very strong. And that comes from good practice too, where you have no doubts. You're willing to lose those things. You're willing to lose your family. You're willing to lose your friends. You're willing to lose your reputation in the eyes of other people. If you know this is the right thing to do, and you know that this is the practice that you have to do, then you do it fearlessly. You see what I mean? But coupled with that is this intense uh, consideration and sensitivity to how other people feel and how they're taking you and whether or not alienating them is necessary. You see what I mean? And I think that if your practice is going well, you can have your cake and eat it too. I think the fearlessness to do what you know what you have to do and the in inflexibility inflexibility on that point you know like I used to go to my boss to ask for three or four weeks off for a retreat you know and I went to him and I said you can cut my pay $20,000 you can lower my position from vice president to supervisor of three people you know you can take away my benefits but I'm going for four weeks and I believe in it and if you want to fire me do it now. You know what I mean? And you're just fearless, you know what I mean? And you have to go in with your mind ready to get fired. You know what I mean? There's this thing about negotiation in the diamond business. They say, draw your line, make up your mind, and go in and be ready to lose the deal. You see what I mean? Be ready to be told, yeah, go home right now, see ya. You see what I mean? So fearlessness on one hand, but I don't think that on the other hand, on the, in this, with the same fearlessness and with the same knowledge and with the same beauty and successful practice, you are ten times more sensitive to how your parents feel or your, or your brothers and sisters or, you know what I mean? They go together. Fearlessness, 
fearless practice, dedication, loyalty to your practice, willingness to die for your practice, willingness to lose everything you have, even your, your name, even your reputation, even how people see you, willingness to lose that if it's necessary. But on the other hand, extremely sensitive to how other people feel and happy to be sensitive and, and doing all these beautiful things to other people. So they're obvious to them that you're not crazy. You see what I mean? What I think happens is that people who are not very good at their practice, uh, they get fearless, okay. And then they go and piss off everybody else. You see, and I add the word unnecessarily. You see, unnecessarily. They think uh, to be a real yogi you have to alienate everybody. And that's not true. I don't believe it's true. You draw your line, you're fearless. People can smell it, people can sense it. But on the other hand, every chance you have to do a small kindness to your parents, you know, a small good thing for your family, a small kind thing for people around you, you walk down the street in your red suit, fearless, you know. And if you see one of the guys making fun of you need something, you give it to him. You see, I mean, that's the balance. And uh, I think most of the tension that's caused with families and stuff like that comes from not really doing exchange of self and others. You're just a lousy bodhisattva. You've got the dedication part right. But you're not really thinking of how they feel. How does it feel to bring somebody up for 20, 30 years, pay all their bills, take care of them with your whole heart, and then suddenly they don't want to call you for six months? You know what I mean? Come on. So give them a call. You know what I mean? That's just, that's just selfish. That's not bodhisattva. That's not some dedicated Buddhist practitioner. That's just selfish. You just don't want to. You see, I mean, it's not got anything to do with your... It's not going to kill you to go call them once a week or something. That's not going to ruin your practice or something like that. You just don't want to do it because you're lazy. You know what I mean? And, and then you're hiding behind this, oh, I'm a yogi, you know. I don't have to call them, you know. That's... Uh, I, I think it comes from there. So check it out. A balance between uh, fearless and uh, totally, the better your practice gets, the more sensitive you are to other people and the more you're thinking, how does my action affect them? Will they be comfortable? You know, I, a lot of Buddhists make other people really uncomfortable, unnecessarily. You know what I mean? The necessary stuff, okay. You know, I don't call people till 2 o'clock, period. So a lot of people get upset about that. Okay, so don't call me, I don't mind. I'm not going to answer anyway. Uh, you have to live like that. You have to draw your line. But then send them a Christmas card, you know. Be nice to them. Go take them some cookies. There's, no, there's nothing wrong with those, both of those things. And I, I think if your practice is going well, you are fearless and totally kind and sensitive at the same time. And they sense it, you know. And my boss, toughest boss in the universe, he... He gave me the three weeks off, and he only took off ten thousand dollars. You know, what I mean? and uh, <laughs> no, but I mean, I mean, if they sense that you're very sincere, that's a thing. And I think that seventy-five percent of the pissing off of parents and friends and fellow workers is totally unnecessary. I think you're just being selfish or thoughtless, and you can't do that. That you're not being a good yogi if you're like that. You see, I mean, good yogis have to do both. Okay, so that's my spiel. 
I want to ask people, what are your experiences about um, how have you coped for the benefit of the rest of us with like people ostracizing you or people saying you're weird now, I don't want to call you or, you know, parents uh, thinking that you're in a cult. You know, I always say, uh, what's your blood type? Because we have to buy the blood to drink tonight, you know, at the cult thing. And, you know, <laughs> which kind do you prefer? You know what I mean? Or something like that. But what are your own... Uh, I, you know, I have, I have continual, you know, I have these problems, you know. I still have these problems. You know, I have people, like, sponsor some project, and then they call me up and say... You know, it looks like a cult nowadays, and I'm like, it is a cult, you know, sorry. <laughs> no, I'm not like that. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, how do you balance between, you know, trying to, to follow your Buddhism with dedication and with your heart, and not appearing weird to the outside world, and, and what do you do when you have little clashes? I think, now just open it up, and then we'll stop in ten minutes and... Yeah. Actually, I've been really fortunate. Talk a little loud, Christina. Everybody's been really supportive with me at work and my friends, and um, they're really thrilled that, that I actually have a practice that I like, because I've gone through many practices where I didn't like it. I've only had one person knock it because, well, he's a very intense, judgmental person. They said, oh, well, that's only for fools. And, and I said, oh, I'm sorry you feel that way. And then we talked about something else. And then next time, she says, oh, where are you going? I said, oh, I'm going to go to my Buddhist class. He says, oh, that's very good. I'm really glad that happened. <laughs> <laughs> I said, oh, okay. See you later. <laughs> um, I think, I don't, I don't know. I guess maybe I've also had the karma to be seen as strange, so I'm just used to it. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Um, I've also been very lucky in, for most of my outside my family life, and where I've never not said that I, you know, I'm, I never claimed to not be Buddhist, or I was pretty open about being Buddhist in work situations and and whatever. And I was very lucky that way. I think in the very beginning, my parents were. My father was positive I was in a cult, and I would get this with him about five years till he. You know, kind of, but calm with that. But I found that the main concern that my family had was that they felt that I would somehow I would no longer be a part of the family group around holiday situations. And um, I think that's true for many people in my family. I was brought up Jewish, and a lot of the things, a lot of the holidays are very family group oriented. People gather and. They just were afraid that I, they were more concerned about me being a part of the family, probably, because they weren't very religious, than they were about the actual religion itself. And so still, I go to Yom Kippur dinners, and you know, we'll have some Hanukkah things, because it's a sense, it's a traditional sense, and then my family had found it much easier to accept that um, the iconography and things all over my house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel strange to them because 
um, I also am a black sheep. Um, <laughs> I do take part in all the things that they would like me to, but not to make police. I think that's an important point, that uh, a lot of uh, not alienating your family can be accomplished by attending three holidays a year or something, which I think is worth it. You know, like, be there for Thanksgiving dinner, be there for Christmas. And Rinpoche has always been very uh, supportive of that. He, he never held classes on, on major Western religious holidays. And uh, he would say, go home, be with your family. You know what I mean? And he would encourage us to... Uh, and I think it's just practical. And, and I think a lot of the tension can be relieved just by that they know you're going to be around for those family things. Yeah. Yeah. I think that parents want kids to be happy. So, and they put all this effort in there. And I think one just can share, you know, like during the years, you know, how you develop, what you see, and let them always be a part of that thought. And, and if they see you're happy, then after a while they're happy too. So at least I experienced that with my strongly Roman Catholic parents who had a big major problem kind of saying, you know, this is worse than if you would have died. Because, I loved you. because we, lost, we lost, you know, the, the confidence that you're always being saved by God because now you're you know, somewhere else. So it was very hard for them. But now, after three years, you know, they're like, you know, I'm, I'm still quite normal, and I call them, and I tell them I'm happy, and then, in a way, they're okay with that. But I realized that that something has changed. That I'm not that part of the family that I was. So there is something in their mind that they gave up, that I'm totally the same, you know, like totally in their world. So they gave up that thing. So I, I am like a little alien in my own family. But I think that's the way how they can deal with it. So like give up a certain hope that I'm in their system. And I think that's fine. Yeah. Michael? Yeah. It seems you were talking a little bit of consideration because if you want to go to hospitals, you have to have concern for those people. And often a loved one be a spouse, friend, parent, it, it seems like they have a fear that you're harming yourself and your needs. Bodhisattvas, my understanding, we have to fit into society to some degree and take care of our needs. And especially if we have some dependency financial or otherwise on those people, then it's even greater concern that they appear and we're harming their well being if we don't take care of ourselves in that relationship. Yeah. <laughs> yes, about you. <laughs> the only thing that makes us human. And, uh, um, and, and we just concerned with that, oh, you know, if you're not, you're going to see things in a black and white way now. You found me in your life, and what about all of us now who, you know, who still have it, and we don't necessarily want to, because we'd be afraid of something. Um, and uh, so, you know, are you still going to be my friend? 
writers, we have a, we've written lots of letters together. I kind of made a mistake that I wrote a letter that was 15 pages long. <laughs> maybe at the next time is uh, how much do you want to try to defend what you do or how much do you want to try to convince them how much is appropriate I think when you first get into the Dharma there's a tendency to to try to convince everybody else which soon wears off you know what I mean and uh, you have to have a great kind of wisdom especially at the beginning to appreciate that they're not seeing the world at all like you are and that's that logic thing where you're not allowed to give a proof which is beyond their personal experience and even if it is within their personal experience but they're not ready to deal with it right now that you should just let it be for a while and, and then there's more spoken by the kindness of your own character than there is by convincing them that kindness is good you know what I mean uh, I think sometimes we tend to do the second thing I think one more and then we'll maybe start next week did you have? yeah <laughs> you don't know which one is the end of us. Yeah. I like that. The main point she said is that you speak, you tend to speak more truthfully and more calmly. If you're really watching your vows carefully, truth disarms many negativities. You know? If you're just totally truthful, which is hard, uh, people... People sense it and people take it. People, it convinces people. But just the tone of truth in your voice convinces people. You know? I think we'll stop there. And we'll, we'll, we'll do it again next week. Because it's a question. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, using music and things like that can be, it can disarm people too. Okay. Yeah. Make some good movies, actually. All right. Ready? In the game to Thank you.
I think this subject is good enough to uh, think about it over the, till the next class. And, and if you have suggestions to people, especially the older Dharma students, you know, like Shell uh, was very useful, I think, uh, about how you dealt with the, the question. You know, the tension between, if you're really practicing heavily, then there's some kind of tension between you and the world. So think about it and then come ready next time. Okay? All right.